Yes, hello and welcome to For and Against, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play, sometimes seriously, sometimes a little frivolously. It's Paul Roach with you here, and um, we're down a man for this show, and uh, and also the next one, while Jono goes and explores the delights of Asia, I'm told. Quite possibly dining at the Singapore Cricket Club as we speak, perhaps. So it's a big hello to Stephen Riley. G'day, Riles. G'day, Paul, but fear not. This is the creme de la creme, the cream rising to the top, the wheat <laughs> finally free from the chaff. We, we, can, we can do this, my friend. We can do this. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, it's quality, not quantity, and all that sort of stuff. Now, in the show ahead, we will look at the upcoming World Cup in Qatar, and specifically some of the human rights discussions that have been coming to a head. We'll talk to sports journal Kevin Sangster about that. Also, the recent stoush that Diamonds had with their now non-sponsor, Hancock Prospecting. Plus, we'll revisit one of the shortest CEO tenures in sport, that of Andrew Thorburn at Essendon. We'll lighten things up a bit by looking at one of the most expensive initiation rituals in the NFL and, of course, finish with red card, yellow card, where the silliness of our favourite sporting types get put back in the spotlight for maximum value. Don't forget, use the hashtag RCYC if you spot one. And speaking of the socials, you can get us on Twitter at for and against underscore on Insta, for, dot, and, dot, against. There is a Hotmail address, which I'm usually derided for for saying it, so I'm not going to. Uh, so let's just get right... <laughs> I'm still going to deride you, uh, 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 Okay, for and against at Hotmail.com. There you go, Steve. Take your, take your best shot, and everyone else for that matter. All righty, let's get into the show. It's, uh, it's fair to say that controversy never really left the successful bid of Qatar for the 2022 World Cup. There were various concerns raised at the time, from the weather to the workers, and with the tournament now all but upon us, concern is once again being raised, with the, the stadium having now been complete, of what the human toll actually was. Now, estimates vary wildly of what that toll was, from the state-issued number of three deaths in the whole process to much larger numbers from various NGOs. Regardless of the precise number, the heat has been put on FIFA and the competing football associations to acknowledge this ugly element uh, of getting us to this point. Now, Steve, um, so, I mean, will the answer to was it worth it something we should wait for the end of the tournament to answer, or do you have a a view on that now? Plenty of controversy in the lead-up. Do we need to wait to the end of the tournament before we, we determine it was worthwhile? No, no, we, we can't. Uh, I don't think that... I mean, how are you going to judge that? You're going to say, oh, we had a fantastic final with cheering fans, therefore it was worth it? Or are you going to say, look, it was too hot and it you know the, the, the games were dour and therefore it wasn't worth it? I, I don't think that the result actually... Uh, is going to be the judge of this. Yeah, and remember, this goes all the way back to when the decision was announced to appoint Qatar. Mm. Amnesty International were in there right from the get-go. You know, it's, I think it's interesting, and we'll talk save some of this up for when we get our guest on the line, but I think, uh, I think it's good that people are talking, actively engaging, and also that they're still playing, but I think we should talk a little bit about that as we get into this. Mm. Well, let's do that right now. Let's get um, Kevin Sangstra on the phone uh, to delve into this a little bit more uh, deeply into the complexities. So Kevin currently writes for Yahoo Sports and the Inner Sanctum. Kev, welcome to For and Against. Thank you very much, Paul, Stephen. Lovely to be here. Thanks for the invite. 
Now, Kevin, you've been following this story closely, and there's many facets to the, con- the controversy that has surrounded uh, the Qatar tournament. I mean, primarily it's around human rights and workers' rights and so forth. So, you know, how long have you been following this story and what sort of made you interested in it in the first place? Oh, well, I, I specialise in um, in writing about football or soccer. Um, and uh, this story has been bubbling along for uh, a number of years now. I think The Guardian picked it up last year and I think they quoted something like 6,500 deaths. Obviously, the Qatar government uh, says otherwise. Mm. Um, where it really sort of kicked off for me recently is I attended a... Um, uh, an online press conference uh, with, back in late September, I think it was. Um, Amnesty International were present, Human Rights Watch, various football fans associations, um, and even Craig Foster, actually, um, who uh, has been quite a voice in this recently. And what they were really getting at in that particular um, press conference was to push a campaign called Pay Up FIFA. Um, Now, what they were trying to get across was to try and encourage FIFA to compensate financially some of the families of the migrant workers that have died. And at the time of the press conference, I think there were five associations that had signed up for that. Got a list of them here, I think. I think it was Belgium, Holland, France, Germany and the States, the United States. In, since that happened at the end of September, um, the UK, uh, uh, sorry, not the UK, the English FA, should I say. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you can't get that uh, wrong, Kirk. God, you, you better get that right. Wrong. That's my home country, man. Um, uh, yeah, the English FA and the Welsh FA have signed up for it. And then literally in, in recent days, we've had the, uh, the Australian FA come out with their statement. Um, so that's the background to my interest, uh, Paul, if that answers your question. Mm. Uh, Kev, I mean, what are we really asking for here? Are we are we are we hoping that you know the twenty odd other nations sign up, or is this all about getting some sort of admission of wrongdoing from FIFA? Uh, it's a good question, Stephen. I mean, I think the ultimate goal is to get FIFA to put their hand in the pocket. Uh, I think the the reason why Amnesty International are, are pushing FIFA is because the chances of getting Qatar, the Qatar government, with all due respect, to pay up is minimal, given that they're not really agreeing on the numbers. So the idea is to get FIFA to pay and getting the associations to, to sign up to the campaign is really just about putting pressure on FIFA. Um, if that makes sense. Mm. I think it's all to do with trying to recognise that there have been, uh, unfortunately, some uh, some fatalities while building these stadiums. The Qatari government have actually admitted quite openly that they, they've employed 30,000 people to come and build these stadiums over the last seven or eight years. What is in dispute is to what's been the um, the conditions for those workers and, and how many people may have unfortunately lost their lives during that. So, so in answer to your question, it's about getting FIFA to pay, and that still hasn't happened as far as I'm aware. Mm. Well, it hasn't. And I don't think it will until after the World Cup, to be honest. Oh, okay. So you reckon it will happen? That's your, that's your, that's your gut feeling? Difficult to say. I mean, FIFA's a complicated beast. <laughs> um, and and in, in fact, this whole thing is quite political in a way. You could argue, and this is me speculating as opposed to any facts here, but you could argue that some FAs maybe around the world may be reluctant to put pressure on FIFA and sign up to this because then they may have a black mark against them uh, that may count against them in future awarding of events in their country. I mean, again, that's pure speculation, but I think it's realistic to expect that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's pretty understandable to have that sort of What's what someone being ungenerous might call that a cynical view, Kev, but I think it's a pretty practical one as well. I mean, there's plenty of plenty of money sloshing around in FIFA. You don't want to jeopardise your chances of 
of getting a cut of that that sort of wedge. Yeah, exactly. I, I think from an Australian point of view, because um, obviously this is going out to an Australian audience, what's interesting in, in the last few days, or, or recently, should I say, is the S- the FFA have come out and made a statement. Mm. Um, and they I think they've called for um, a migrant workers' centre to be a legacy of the tournament, um, which is a, a forward-thinking thing. They've called for recognition of LGBTI rights, which is a slightly different issue in Qatar. Interestingly, their statement didn't mention the pay-up FIFA campaign. So it, it was unclear to me in the statement whether they're actually signing up to that or not. Mm. Um, there is one other factor I, I can talk about the Craig Foster factor if you, if you'd like the Craig Foster uh, factor by all means Kev far away <laughs> yeah so what was interesting about Craig and I've had fortunately had some interaction with him I wrote a couple of articles last uh, late earlier this year on the Socceroos uh, qualifying for the World Cup um, and uh, he kindly gave some comments around that um, not that I know him to go for a drink down the pub with but um, I have had some interaction with him um, when when the announcement from the FFA came out, he was all over social media, but his angle was all about praising the Socceroos. And interestingly, he didn't mention the FFA at all mm. in the videos that he released on um, uh, on social media. So I'm not quite sure of the reasons for that. I'm sure there's a background there. Um, but one thing that he did say that the, um, oh, the Socceroos said that the FFA didn't was that they support a remedy. And what he means by remedy is compensation. Mm. So interestingly, the FFA didn't say that they didn't support it. They just didn't state it, whereas the Socceroos did. And the final point on that is I think Craig Foster has managed to influence the news cycle because when that statement came out, SBS that night led with the Socceroos have made a statement to the world. They didn't lead with the FFA have made a statement to the world, although they mentioned it in their report. And I suppose that leads into all the stuff that's been going on with the netball that I know you're going to uh, comment on and um, even Patty Cummings and Alinta Energy in, in recent times. So it all sort of feeds into the same thing about sports people and power, I guess. Yeah, let's just go back. Sorry, Steve, I know you're trying to jump in there, but I just want to – it's worth going back over a couple of your comments there, Steve, in case people aren't clear. So the FFA released a statement, a nice little one-pager full of sort of corporate speak, PR speak, and then the players released a video or the, through the, the Players Association released a video featuring, I don't know, I think it was something like 16 different Socceroos, you know, piece to camera. They obviously all read from the same same script and then they intercut, you know, different players speaking different lines. I found it actually rather powerful. I, I thought three minutes, not going to – sort of bother watching that I get the general idea but it was actually pretty pretty good and and to your point Kev it sort of it seemed to go a little bit beyond you know what well, went beyond what I was expecting them to say um, mm. and it, it has yeah. it did reverberate around the world I remember within a few hours of it coming out or perhaps more particularly when it was breakfast time in the UK I got a text from a from a pommy mate of mine who you know who already knew about it uh, and that would have been sort of in the morning first thing after that was released in the morning UK time uh, and look, the yeah. other the other thing I, I, I was amused by in that video compilation was that at least one of the guys would have obviously done it from his car. Like as much as it was an important kind of thing, it reminded me of in my other job uh, when during COVID times you just got to make do, and sometimes I use the car as my office. So I had a bit of a bit of a chuckle at that. Um, Steve, have you had a chance? Did you did you see the video at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I think I, what I think is really interesting about this is there are multiple things being discussed here and 
uh, you know, migrant workers, LGBTQI plus, you know, uh, and and frankly, and and then the the remedy which overlaps. It's not it's not all the same, and I really like it. And I think it's interesting that players have felt brave enough to mm. come out and say it before they they head on over. And I I think the key is that they are safe. At least, well, we'll see. Mm. Right? If, mm. if they're not safe, and then mm. we'll go back to your first question, we'll know <laughs> that the World Cup in Qatar was an absolute failure. So mm. they're, they're playing a bit of brinksmanship, and I, I don't think it's something that, that we expect FIFA to eventually come to the party on. And I can see why the FFA are choosing which thing they're stepping into, but mm. I do like that the voices, um, well, the players are letting their voice be heard. Absolutely. Yeah, it's bold. And, and you know, it's, as Kev, you, you said, we will talk later about the, the Diamonds and their stand. So it's an interesting sort of evolution of player power, although it'll be interesting to see whether what the Socceroos did was maybe even a, a tad naive. I mean, that they've they've travelled and played around the world. They make that point in the video, so perhaps they are worldly. But, I mean, in some respects, it's a culture so different from the one we're used to here that mm. I, I hope the brinksmanship is innocuous and it does, well if not necessarily work, at least is just battered away uh, innocuously. Kevin, have you have you seen have you seen what the, the Danes have done with their, their kit? I have, yeah, and I was gonna mention that actually. So um for the benefit of the listeners who haven't, um Denmark have come out or the, the kit maker of Denmark, which is Hummel, um, have come out and uh, released three kits, all of which will have no no images on whatsoever, because that's against FIFA policy to have any sort of political statements. Um, but the third kit, which it's interesting, it's the third kit because it probably won't be used, but it's um, it's going to be all black, which is nothing to do with Denmark's colours. And apparently that's, in to quote the uh, the kit manufacturer, that's the colour of mourning for the uh, the migrant workers that uh, have allegedly died. So that's pretty powerful too. Mm, wow. Uh, so Kev, before we let you go, uh, how much further into the tournament do you think the Socceroos will, will progress than England? What's... <laughs> How much further do, will the Socceroos go than England? Oh, listen, I, I was sort of expecting a, a, a question along those lines, uh, Paul. Uh, I have to say, I don't think the Aussies will get out of their group. No um, chance. No chance. Uh, France and Denmark are, are pretty powerful teams. Yeah. But I also don't think England will get very far. And I think and you've written something easy... to that effect, haven't you? You've put you you've put have... your name to that. Yeah. I have. I think quarterfinals uh, is uh, is as far as England will go, and. Being a pom, that that pains me to say that, um, but um, I, I think it's true. And uh, if you want a tip, uh, Argentina or Holland? Well, you know, it, Kevin, if if England do get knocked out, you can always you know go for the UK team that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to live that down, Stephen, am I? I uh, no, it's, it's nah, no. But you're welcome on the show anytime. <laughs> <laughs> it's been recorded. It's committed for posterity there, Kev. Bad luck. All right, Kev, thanks for joining us on the show. Kevin Sankster there, so freelance sports journal. You can see his right read his writing on uh, Yahoo Sports, Inner Sanctum, and so forth. And uh, go the Socceroos. Thanks very much, Paul. Australian netball has been one of the hardest hit sports by COVID, and indeed, we covered some of the financial fallout, including the late decision to sell the grand final to Perth on shows past. Now, apparently $7 million in the red, you'd assume that the offer of a $15 million sponsorship across four years, which I think has been missed in a few circles, might be warmly received. Well, it was by the head office, 
by Netball Australia. But unfortunately, the players had an issue or two with the idea of having Hancock prospecting on their jersey. A fascinating study, this, Steve, into the collision of values and commercial reality. And it's interesting that the former, their set of values, won over the commercial reality. Did it win? Did it win over reality? Or is this just reality, you know, doing them slowly? Uh, look, I, I do think that there's there's some uh, good news for people who are voicing their values and saying that they don't want to shill things that they don't have respect for. But I think there are a few dimensions to this whole thing that, that we can explore a little bit. Mm. You know, because I, I think I think some of the reasons why it got knocked back have been conflated or lost with in some Huma. other sort of convenient things. Mm. Absolutely. So maybe it's worth going back to yeah. first principles too. So the the origin the origins of this issue was one of the players of Aboriginal heritage had pointed out that Lang Hancock, obviously the person behind Hancock Prospecting, who may well have been uh, not with us for the last thirty years. But nonetheless, was recorded on, a, on an interview. I think it was the early '80s, essentially saying some what at the time surely were, were very derogatory things about Aboriginal people, and certainly in today's climate are just you know kind of unthinkable. And as a consequence, this person said, "Look, I'm I'm not comfortable with that." And the team sort of rallied around her and said, "We we support our teammate." That was the the origins of it, Steve. But it sort of grew a bit of a life from there. Look, it is, but I, I don't think we should uh, shy away from the fact that Hancock Prospecting is a mining company. Mm. And so, therefore, they they were coming from a position where, uh, you know, Joe Public was was sort of doubly inclined to go against them. But but I think I think that yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of levels to this to me that that fascinate me a little bit. You know, the the players did say that you know the the, the comments said in the eighties by Gina Reinhardt's dad about the sterilisation of Aboriginal women. Yeah, that, they are so right to call that out. That's it, just outrageous. What I what I've never quite understood is why that wasn't at least um, disagreed with by present day Hancock. Mm. Uh, and did I miss that? Did you see that? Did they come out and say, "Well, you know, in no defence for those comments, but it's from another time, another group of people." You know, the, we've we've certainly we, we yes. don't agree. No, no. To answer your question, so st- certainly as we go to digits now, nothing had come out along those lines. So there was certainly a lot of commentary to suggest that they should. I mean, I think um, Andrew Gaze, for example, was very vocal a day or two after it really sort of of came to a conclusion about, you know, surely that's the obvious thing to do. But um, no, as I say, to my knowledge, uh, no such thing existed. No such thing existed there where, as you say, we we distance ourselves from those comments. But, you know, here we are today and we're offering a substantial commercial package to help out a sport in, in somewhat uh, difficult circumstances. Well, and, and look, I, I, look, I think that it's, it's right for a sport to say we have values and we are going to pick and choose who we associate ourselves with. And, and if you go back to the 80s when uh, Rugby League and uh, you know, Formula One you know, cut their connections with tobacco, hmm. there, there is a, a line that you draw and you say we're, we're not going to be involved. But I'm not sure, and, and this is why I think it's important to to call out the, the the horrible comments from the 80s here, because I still think that's the the main justifiable reason, and because it wasn't sort of negated by the sponsors, I think it was fair enough to call it. But if it was just about mining, and we can talk a little bit about the Australian cricket team with uh, energy sponsorship, you know, I think we're starting to get into spaces where it's okay to object, but is it? right or wrong to say individually as players, I, I'm not going to wear the jersey. 
Yeah, I mean, you've got instances already where um, some athletes of, of Islamic background have asked not to have the Tui's logo, for example, in their state of origin jersey or what have you. And and Usman Khawaja, you know, fairly famously, you know, he's, he was he avoided being sprayed with champagne. I know that's not what we're talking about here, but you know, he's in of that um, of that ilk. If that's not if that's the appropriate way of describing it, but. Yeah, I mean, there's there's individual sensitivities, and you obviously you can you, you know I think most most sporting organisations would accommodate that by saying, yep, okay, you don't you don't have to wear the the Tui's logo, and and look, frankly, invariably that sort of brings Tui's probably more publicity than it would otherwise get. You know, here we are talking about the brand, but yeah, I think what you're ta- yours talking about is at scale, and you know you've you've mentioned there Pat Cummins talking about a linter, and you know is it right for a sporting team? to pick and choose who their commercial partners are? Well, yeah, we're seeing it at a few levels where we saw the you know, some of the Manly Warringah players talk about it with a, a pride round jersey. If you go back, there's actually a flip where, you know, Israel Folau effectively got some... Well, it, that was different, I suppose, but player power and expressing his values didn't work in that situation because they were seen to be at odds with the sports-stated values. Mm. Yep. Tricky one, complicated one. We could talk for hours on it, but let's not because I want to talk about... Yes, uh, the, the other great example of values colliding with uh, the commercial reality or what have you is uh, down there at Essendon at Windy Hill uh, not that long ago now where um, Andrew Thorburn, uh, the former CEO of the National Australia Bank, I think he must have claimed the Australian record for the shortest-lived sports CEO, having been appointed to the gig uh, at Essendon which was a club in significant, well, geez, a club in significant need of firm and experienced leadership. Uh, his stewardship of a church with, uh, I suppose, what we can call a fairly conservative view on a number of uh, social issues came to light. And this prompted the club, after presumably tightening up their due diligence process policy, to let Thorburn go, citing, quote, a clear conflict of interest with an organisation whose views do not align at all with our values as a safe inclusive, diverse, and welcoming club for our staff, our players, our members, our fans, our partners, and the wider community. So, uh, Steve, what are your thoughts on this one? This sort of evolves nicely from what we're talking about with netball. I mean, was it is that virtue signalling, or is that the right move? Is there, you know, there's a de- deliberately uh, baiting kind of question to ask you there, but there, there is a few dimensions to this one as well. Oh, well, first of all, I think, you yeah, know, there's... It, I don't know that their values are super clear when the values that they took to, you know, choosing him in the first place didn't pick this up and they announced it and then found out, oh, I think there's a disconnect in this story somewhere that I, I just struggled to find. Oh, big time. It's a what re- do you think? It's Well, yeah, big time. It's a rearguard action, right? So, they've, I mean, I, I'm sure they've employed him in good faith and uh, I, I assume, well, there's one or two scenarios here. They've, they're sort of loosely aware of his connection to this church and they thought, no big deal, uh, or they just didn't pick it up. But in any event, it doesn't take, once you make that sort of announcement, it doesn't take much for the millions out there for someone to go and find a bit of footage or a little clip from a, uh, a mission statement on a website and to throw it back at the club and saying, is this really consistent with what uh, the club otherwise stands for? Yeah, look, I think I think the key word here is inclusive, right? I think that's what the sport is trying to say. That's what the Essendon Football Club is trying to say. And they were, um, they were they're fighting back, not fighting back. They were saying, we don't agree with views that exclude, which yep. which okay. is is where, and and I think and I think if you go back, you know, to the story the articles, well, the situations we were talking about before, that was the case with Israel Folau, that he was excluding certain people, and and I think that's the theme where most of these you know values or most of the sports are saying we are 
abiding by these values. I, I do worry, though, where that inclusivity starts to exclude yeah. certain values, and I reckon that that's a that's a that's a difficult space. Yeah, that's it's that's the that's where the pendulum swings, and it's it is it's hard to know where the the appropriate stopping point for that pendulum to to continue. My clumsy analogy is because you're right. Ultimately, someone's got excluded, but it's a result of. It's it's a double negative, isn't it? They've been excluded because of them being excluded, not exclusive. That's not what's, what's the right word, here, Steve? They're not exclusive. Exclusionary is that the right word? You're in a triple negative territory, I am, I am, but it's different. Get me it's out. different to it's different to the energy battles, right? It's different to them because that's not about inclusivity. That that's about worldviews and sustainability, and, and I think I think that's where we've got to be a little bit more careful. That, that we don't, we want to have constructive debate about those things. But I, I think the idea of saying we're going to have a hard yes, no on a sponsor uh, gets gets really interesting when you, you can actually end up, I think, with, the, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Linter this year with the cricket, where the sponsor says, all right, well, I'm sponsoring the cricket, but the captain's not going to appear in any of my ads, you know, so therefore the value goes down. Mm. And similarly, you know, the beer companies, you know, well, I'm, I'm Usman Khawaja is not going to wear my uh, the the badge on his jersey. So the spot, the value of the sponsorship goes down, and and then I think you're going to see the sports get into a really interesting mm-hmm. balancing act mm-hmm. about well, what's it worth? You know, is Hancock prospecting worth it? You know, I don't get the full fifteen mil uh, because Danielle Wallam isn't going to wear my jersey, but I'll you know I get fourteen mil. Mm. And is that okay, or is the controversy no longer worth it to Hancock, and so they they back away? And if you extrapolate this player power thing out to its fullest extent, I mean, the question you've got to ask is, is is that commercially viable? Because if if too many players have too much objection to too many potential sponsors or actual sponsors, uh, then to your point, Steve, the value of funds coming into the into the sport are going to decrease, and that'll have you know if if it, if it decreases significantly enough, which it may well do, that'll obviously have uh, knock on effects both in the short term and the long term. So. Um, there's a balancing act there, as some wise man once uh, once said to me about five minutes ago. Um, but look, just in conclusion, I, I thought it was interesting. So Thorburn lasted five years at the helm of, of NAB and one day at the Bombers. Who'd have thought a footy club with uh, would have tougher moral fibre than a bank? We talked a show or two about the amazing prices paid for the rarest bits of sporting memorabilia. Maybe it's opened our eyes to it because we've just had to mention a couple more. So... Uh, Steve, what can you tell us about Aaron Judge of the New York Yankees? So question me that notice there. Uh, does that name ring a bell? Does it mean anything to you or am I going to have to tell you about him? No, no. Yeah, I, oh, I've, I've only caught a little bit of this. You know, he hit uh, something like his 60th, 62nd home run of the season. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's worth a gazillion. Yeah. And, and that's about all I know. Tell me more. Oh, no, that's all you need to know. Yeah, well done. Moving on. Oh, no, no, oh, no. Right, so oh, I'm glad we had this chat. Yeah, no, the, 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 the record's actually high, but it was in the steroids era. Um, so it's, it's up in the 80s, apparently. But, uh, yeah, so exactly. Aaron was uh, sat on 61, which equaled the record for a good few games, built up the expectation nicely. So, and so, sorry, if it wasn't clear, this is for the no, most number of home runs in a season. Obviously, uh, it's a fairly big sort of thing to happen. So Aaron's been sitting on the equal record for a while, and indeed, in the lead up to him hitting the presumably going to he's presumably going to hit the the sixty second to take the record, there was a pre event offer of two million dollars US for the ball that he hit that winning run with. So already before it happened, there was two million bucks on the table to to try and secure it. Now, in any event. Go on, Steve. No, no, no. Look, it's funny. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to mix, um, you know, truth is strange in the fiction. 
there's a wonderful book by Don DeLillo called is it Underworld, where it opens with a shot heard around the world, and it's it's a famous home run in a Dodgers Giants game in New York when they were both based in New York, and it's and there's a scramble for the ball, and uh, this just reminds me of it hmm. so much because it's worth. It's priceless. Exactly. Priceless. Exactly. Except there's a price. In the end, price. well, it's price. true, true, true. Well, to that point, so a guy, the, the ball was actually caught, even though the game was in Texas, the ball was caught by a guy called Corey Yeomans, who is a, a, uh, a Yankees fan, sat between two Texas fans, Rangers fans, apparently. Now, um, you know, the, the feel-good story would be if Corey was 21, a student, lifelong Yankees fan, poor student debt, all that sort of stuff, and sold this ball for $3 bucks. But unfortunately, Corey's a, uh, a vice president at a not insubstantial investment firm based in the States who managed some uh, $200 billion, I think. So I think Corey's probably doing okay. Um, so last I checked, I, I wasn't uh, able to determine what Corey had decided to do uh, with the ball or whether he decided to take up that $2 million offer. So um, we'll, we'll find out later on. Uh, of course, you need scarcity to drive up the price, and that's what happened to the humble footy card in Argentina. Footy card, perhaps a misnomer, but with the World Cup just around the corner as we talk, Demand for the traditional issue of World Cup stickers in Argentina has skyrocketed, or did skyrocket, until the country's commerce secretary intervened. So uh, a problem that was so significant that it required the government to uh, to gather all the key stakeholders around a table and uh, manage the demand and supply. And I think the big problem was supply constraints, COVID, rah, 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 uh, and perhaps also that uh, the hope that Argentina might be winners, indeed, as... As our correspondent Kev Sankster said earlier in the show, he picked Argentina to be the winners. So yeah, supply constraints, government intervention—you know, the sporting memorabilia. This is this is this is really important stuff. Well, no, it is. Oh, don't 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 joke. I'm not. I mean, it's tra- a little bit. This this is the sort. Of, I think I think as Australians, we understand the Argentinian government, you know, stepping in on this. I mean, we we still have our government determine what sports should appear on free to wear TV, and thank goodness for that. <laughs> Indeed. Now, on to the NFL, last thing in the shootout. So, um, look, uh, the rest of the show, I think, will be a bit poorer for Jono's absence, to be honest with you. But let's let's give it a go. We'll see how we go. <laughs> Hello, Jono, if you do choose to listen to the show, which you should, of course. Let's talk about restaurant dinners, big dinners. I mean, big, long, expensive dinners, hideously, immorally huge dinners. It turns out that one of the traditions in the NFL is that rookies fork out for a preseason dinner for all their new teammates. And wow, they go all out. You know, lobster, caviar, cognac, wine that's been in the rack for decades. And it's not uncommon to rack up a, a bill of five figures. And that's in US dollars, right? This is the norm. So, Steve, I don't know, do you reckon this tradition could catch on in Australia? Or, or, or does the fact that the average NFL rookie earn north of half a million US dollars confine the Aussie equivalent to perhaps the local Maccas? Well, it's, it's a kind of hazing, really, isn't it? I mean, where they, yeah, you know, this, this young guy gets a great big contract and then they then they force him to spend 25 grand on lunch. <laughs> uh, of course, actually, one, one thing I will point out is it's it's actually a good thing that Jono's not here with us today because, mm. you know, this is a typical Friday for him and he wouldn't have been impressed whatsoever. <laughs> Yeah, look, uh, very interesting tradition. Uh, I think it sort of flies in the face of uh, well, a lot of people, frankly, a bunch of overpaid young fellas getting uh, getting out and blowing a whole lot of cash on. Look, the point was made, though, that I think, um, you know, as much as these guys might earn a, a, get a half-million-dollar, even more contract, they're actually not guaranteed contracts. So if he has, you know, four or five bad games, he's actually never playing again. 
So it's a it's all a bit fraught, and you know, there's a lot of tax and agents fees and stuff that come out of that half a mil and violins. Oh, oh, <laughs> me a river. Are you serious? <laughs> Alrighty, well, uh, let's come back with red card, yellow card. And now to red card, yellow card, where uh, the closing stages of the show, we enjoy poking fun at uh, sporting types and some of the misdemeanors and indiscretions they've got up to off the field of play. Steve, what have you got for us? So I have a story about rock and roll and golf. Ah, yes. Again, a bit of a loss that Simon's not here with us today. But um, this this is a story about the Kings of Leon drummer Nathan Followill, mm. who was really looking forward to playing one of his bucket list golf courses in Sydney. Yeah. Anyway, he was turned away at the door because they wouldn't let him in unless he covered up a number of his very prominent tattoos. Uh, the angry stickers. The angry stickers. So he has prominently taken to social media. He's declared that this course, which he did not name, oh, I might point out. I was just about to ask. He's put it on something that rhymes with bucket list. <laughs> Um, and started a new list. Sure. Um, but interestingly, you know, there. So he's, it, besmirched it the repu- he's besmirched the reputation of every Sydney golf course by not naming the, the offending one. But we can probably well, guess. Well, fear not. We, we can probably guess, but it, they are taking it seriously because uh, someone from uh, Royal Sydney did uh, point out, did feel the need to tell the Daily Mail when they were doing their investigative no, journalism, as only they can, that as our course has been closed for turf care maintenance since Sunday, this likely occurred somewhere else. So, <laughs> you know, you know, me thinks they doth protest too much. Because I must, I must say Royal Sydney was one of the first ones that popped into my mind. They're too busy chopping down trees, aren't they, that course that are trying to completely denude the place? Okay. Oh well, it, it is a shame that Jono's not here. Maybe it was the Australian. That's that, you know who knows. Oh, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to say a name. But I, anyway, there is a course <laughs> in Sydney on a list, and uh, and and I, I suggest that they deserve a yellow card. Yellow card. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I too am going with golf, Stevo, and uh, I may have had a little inkling. You might have been as well, which is why I said earlier that it's a shame Jono couldn't be with us for the rest of the show. But. Um, look, we're managing so far, frankly, Jono. Uh, in further yeah. proof that you shouldn't play golf, Australian T20 squad <laughs> member Josh Inglis suffered a tournament-threatening injury just bef- a few days before the tournament kicked off, all because he picked up a golf club. The wrong club, as it turned out, because Josh Inglis was playing around with a few other team members a few days out from the Australian-New Zealand game, and the less said about the outcome of that one, the better, when disaster struck. The club he was playing with broke mid-stroke and it drew a not insignificant amount of blood from his hand and indeed it needed a trip to hospital. Now, Steve, at least the reports were prepared to name the uh, the location for this one. It was the New South Wales Golf Club. Now, no one's suggesting the golf club's at fault here, unlike your Kings of Leon, uh, mate, but um, for the record, it was at uh, New South Wales. And uh, yeah, Josh. Josh managed to draw blood by snapping a club, which must take some effort or and or some rust. I would have thought. So look, I'm I, I don't know. I'm I'm tempted to exaggerate and just go clear red for playing golf, but uh, it's probably a little bit harsh. Uh, Going to go harsh. yellow on that one. Well, no, I think I think it's I think it's probably uh, a, a yellow. Although oh, um, gold, my friend, not not yellow. Australian green and gold. 
Green and green and yellow. Gold. Yeah. Green and gold. That's green and gold, my friend. I, that was crazy. Yeah, I think we forced that one. We but did. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, uh, all right. So that's a yellow there for Josh Inglis <laughs> to, to, to get us out of red card, yellow card. And with the end of red card, yellow card brings us to the end of the show. So, uh, Steve O, double hand. I think we managed to survive it. I think we might have to do one more after this. But um, well done to you and thank you for joining us as always. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, everyone. Don't forget, folks, you can get us on Twitter at for and against underscore the much maligned email for and against at hotmail.com and on Insta for dot and dot against. Until next time. In about a fortnight, it's also goodbye from me, Paul Roach. Bye for now. 